finish topic number two and get started on topic number three. And uh, sad to say, we will not finish topic number three this week. No way, no how. But we're going to do the best we can do, and that's all we can do. So last time we started on what I called the Langer Affair, as it's called in Hebrew, the, uh, the, the brother and sister. If you remember the story, uh, Chava Ginsburg was a, uh, a Jewish woman who uh, eloped with a, non- with, with a non-Jewish man in 1923 in Poland. Uh, the man was Bolek Borakowski. Um, they got married when he was not Jewish. Her parents pressured him to convert. At some point, he starts functioning as part of the Jewish community, and they the, uh, the claim is, the story is, that he has converted to Judaism, that they were remarried with a, uh, with a chuppah and a kosher wedding. Uh, they, her parents end up moving to Israel. They follow suit. This is all pre-state in the early 1930s. Um, and the early 1940s, Bolak and Chava separate without a get, without a Jewish bill of divorce. Chava begins seeing a man by the name of Yahushua Langer, Otto Langer. He was a Jew who was serving in the forces of the British Mandate. And uh, they get married in Israel in 1942 by a prominent rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Levitsky. Later on, Chava testifies that she had not told him about the first marriage. That, uh, that she had not mentioned anything about the first marriage. Well, Chava and Yoshua produced two children, uh, Hanoch and Miriam. And the problem begins when Hanoch and Miriam later want to get married. Hanok specifically uh, is the one that starts for in 1966. He's still serving in the IDF, as is his sister Miriam. Uh, Hanok wants to get married, and at that point he goes to the rabbinical court uh, and finds out that he can't. And the reason he can't get married is because the court, the things we discussed last time, we're not rehashing everything from last time, but the court has learned about her original marriage to Bolek Borakovsky. The court understands that Bolek is in fact Jewish and that their marriage ended without a get, without a bill of divorce. And because there was no bill of divorce before Hanoch and Miriam were born, that means that they are illegitimate. They have the status that is called in Hebrew, Mamzer. They can only marry either others who have the same status that they do, or they can marry someone who converted to Judaism. But that's basically their set of options at this point, um, because again, their mother did not have a divorce from her first husband before producing them from her uh, from her second husband. Is that, is that clear? Right. We, um, okay. So that's the that's the problem. That's the situation that we come to. And again, I'm not using this uh, th- this talk as an opportunity to discuss the ins and outs and, and, and ethics of the rule of mamzer, the fact that someone in this position can't get married through no apparent fault of their own. Um, rabbis have been trying to explain this one for literally millennia. The uh, the Talmud is bothered by it. it, it uh, it's always been a, a challenge to try to understand why this person should suffer in this way. There are all sorts of explanations. There are mystical explanations about the nature of the soul of the mamzer. There are practical explanations about trying to prevent people from engaging in adultery and incest by, you know, if they know that this is going to be the price that their child is going to pay, then they won't, uh, they, then they won't engage in misbehavior. All sorts of different explanations are offered. Bottom line is that if indeed it is, it is held to be true that Chava and Bolek were actually in a Jewish marriage, 
then Hanoch and Miriam are going to be unable to marry their intended. So it becomes a major cause uh, in Israel. At the end of the 1960s, Hanoch and Miriam are both doing their IDF service in the office of the Minister of Defense, Moshe Dayan, who gets involved. We saw last time his threat that if the rabbis can't work this out, he's going to push for civil marriage in Israel, at least for people who are in this particular situation. Um, and uh, ultimately, there are new elections for the chief rabbinate in 1972. Rabbi Yisra Yehuda Unterman is replaced by Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, and Rabbi Shlomo Gorin permits them to get married. Once he becomes the Ashkenazi chief rabbi, before that he had been the chief rabbi of the IDF, he had been involved in the case beforehand. He had been lobbying for them beforehand, and now he's in a position where he is able to, uh, to permit them to get married. And if you take a look on your sheets, it's source number one. One, you find a quick summary of what happened. This is from Rabbi J. David Blythe's article on the uh, on the topic. Okay, everyone has? Okay. Upon his election as chief rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin sought to have the case reheard by a panel of the Supreme Rabbinical Court consisting of the two chief rabbis and a third member to be selected jointly by both chief rabbis. He says, let's rehear the case. Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, refused to accede to this proposal. He was the Sparty chief rabbi, and he said, we're not reopening this case, we've already dealt with it. Noting he had already sat as a member of a Din which had issued a negative ruling, and that Rabbi Gorin, while yet chief chaplain of the Israeli Armed Forces, also known as chief rabbi of the IDF, had authored and circulated among selected individuals a pamphlet in which he had argued the Langers were not to be regarded as Mamzerim. So in view of their prior involvement, Rabbi Yosef felt that both chief rabbis should disqualify themselves, right? Rabbi Yosef says, how in the world can we have an unbiased rehearing of the case? You've already staked out your position. I've already staked out my position. If you want it to be reheard, pick a new panel. He instead proposed an impartial Beit Din be appointed to be composed of Dayanim, judges, who had not previously ruled on the matter. This suggestion was not acceptable to Rabbi Gorin, who subsequently, on November 19, 1972, issued a ruling in his own name and in the name of eight other rabbis whose names he declined to reveal, right? In the name of rabbis who shall not be named, um, permitting the Langers to marry. The reasons for this decision and the documents supporting it were published by Rabbi Gorin in a 200-page book bearing the imprimatur of the chief rabbinate of Israel. And more trees. Okay, so there's actually, there, there are conflicts among the sources where this one says that it's him plus eight others. I've seen others that claim it was him plus nine others. When you don't have names anyway, it could have been 215 others. We don't actually know. Um, but that's the um, that's that's what he says has happened. Uh, Rabbi A. Tom Hankin, grandson of Rabbi Yosef Elio Hankin in the U.S., published an article um, a few years back in which he he um, claims that he knows and he he publishes the identity of some of the rabbis who sat on the uh, on the panel. But this court concludes the Langers are not Mamzerim and they are able to get married. Well, now we get to the reason why. I am bringing you this story in our list of six major events because this causes a major rift, a major falling out between left and right in the uh, in the traditional halachic community in Israel. If you take a look at source number two, a decree signed by leading rabbis, as I titled it, because there's no real title for it, but you can see the document here in number two. A spirit of madness now passed 
masses through our holy land, misleading the masses, as though one could change the law which has been accepted since, since Sinai from generation to generation, and to permit that which is prohibited based on foundations which lack any possibility and which are lies and deception. They're not really sure. We declare that anyone who says thus has no part in halacha, and one cannot rely on his ruling, and anyone who helps spread this view which endangers the survival of the nation will face justice. A very strong stance on the uh, on the topic, and it's not just about this ruling. They are disqualifying Rabbi Gorin essentially from all future rulings, saying we're not going to listen to him. We, he has demonstrated that he no longer follows the system that we believe in. And if you look at the names, different people may recognize different names here, but they represent old and new. There are leading European rabbis on this list. For example, Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz was one of the survivors from the Mir Yeshiva in Poland when they fled through Shanghai. The, um, he represents Europe here, Rabbi Chazkel Abramski as well. From those who came over from Europe, Rabbi Yaakov Kanievsky, who had come over from, uh, from, from Russia. Um, Rabbi Yezim Menachem Manshach, Rabbi Yosef Shalom al-Yashiv will be recognized as leaders of the Haredi community going into the early 21st century. And Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach was considered in his lifetime as one of the major moderate leaders of orthodoxy in, uh, in Israel until his passing several years ago. Um, the, uh, the, this, is, uh, this is a representation of um, leading figures of the time and the following 30 years, all weighing in and saying what Rabbi Gordon has done is simply unacceptable. He has crossed a line, and the argument was made that he had crossed the line not because he had an opinion which simply differed with those of others. It wasn't simply about a dispute, but rather for political reasons that he wanted the position of chief Ashkenazi rabbi and that he had negotiated that he would permit the Langers to get married in order to get that position. That was a major allegation of the time. They, uh, take a look at source number three, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's response on this point. And again, when people think of the Lubavitcher Rebbe today, I would venture to say that most people think of a teddy bear. The, um, people think of him in terms of all the outreach that Lubavitch does and very warm and fuzzy and friendly. Take a look at what he has to say. This is actually not the um, word for it. This is somebody talking about his view. To be fair, it was in the journal called Hapardes, where it was reported. In the Rebbe's view, this event sets a dangerous precedent for rabbinic authority worldwide, whether because of the conditioning of selection of a rabbi upon granting a particular leniency... Right? In other words, he's claiming the chief rabbinate election was rigged based on this decision, or because of the proclamations of the minister of defense and the government that the brother and sister may marry even before the rabbis had ruled on the matter. Right? It's already been decided. This is what's going to happen. Rabbi, your job is to get to that point. The government rules and benignly permits the rabbi to support the permission with halakha. The, the statement was, you have undermined the halakhic, the halakhic process. Now, it wasn't Rabbi Gorin alone against the world. He did indeed um, face major opposition from the Haredi community. He also faced very strong opposition from the, within the religious Zionist community. It wasn't only the Haredim who were against him. It wasn't only the Lubavitcher Rebbe writing, writing from New York who was against him. Even within the religious Zionist community, there were many who opposed him. But there was a big name who weighed in on his side. And that was Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, 
son of the more famous Rabbi Yaman Yitzchak Cook, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook was a leader in his own right. I did a translation here of the letter he wrote. And honestly, it's a, it's a poor translation because cookie in Hebrew, if you will, that of Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook and that certainly of his father, Rabbi Yaman Yitzchak Cook, doesn't translate into English. It draws on biblical verses, it draws on Midrashim, it's very flowery, and when you render it into English... It, 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 it's the stuff left at the bottom of the coffee or the hot chocolate. It, it doesn't really do it. But I, I felt you had to at least see someone wrote in favor. Someone supported him. So take a look at number four. From the depths of my heart and soul, I express feelings of gratitude on publication of the book clarifying the clear and open elements of the sacred ruling, which is halachically accurate, for eliminating the slander regarding the souls of our brother and sister. May the rock of Israel bless and guard them. And for removing the confusion which erodes the truth from God's nation and lot. And every hour and moment of these days I anticipated and hoped for the publication of these clarifications. You have given me life. May the lips of falsehood go mute and the wicked hands of strife be cut off. Hmm. I mean, you should see the Hebrew. The Hebrew is beautiful. The, um, but, uh, but what he's trying to do, what he's trying to do here is to establish without having actually made the argument one way or the other. He hasn't given a legal argument supporting Rabbi Gorin, but he says, I knew you were right. I'm so glad you published your 200-page book to explain why you're right. And, uh, and, and boy, what a relief. That's basically it. Now, the fascinating conclusion of this story... I think I may have mentioned it last week, is that in 1973, after the brother and sister have been permitted to get married on the basis of the argument that their father wasn't Jewish and therefore didn't need a, uh, a get, so after that, the, secular, the high secular court, the Bagats, in Israel certified Barakovsky, the, uh, the original husband, as Jewish from the state's perspective. So now you've had your cake and you've eaten it too, right? He gets to be Jewish, they get to not be mamzi women to, and, and to get married, and everybody goes home thinking this was weird. So, sorry? No. That's correct. This was a secular court that, that, uh, that labeled him Jewish. This wasn't from the, uh, the rabbinical courts. Susan? Was this from the Sharia church, like, Right. So, so the answer is, is yes and no. Um, the idea of Haredi is a very old term. To be Hared Lidvar Hashem, to tremble at the word of God, is not a new concept. Um, in terms of the split, though, in terms of the split in the communities, this was a major contributing factor. The truth is, the split goes way, way back. Meaning, pre-state and pre-modern Aliyah, if you go back before the 1870s, the dominant Jewish population in Israel at that point is what would today be called Haredi. They're living on, more or less, the Chalukah, the distribution of money that's collected in Europe and sent over. When Ruth Cook shows up in the beginning of the, uh, of the 20th century, there's a major split over the distribution of the Chalukah because the, he, he, he's from one group and the people who are administering the Chalukah from another group. There's a lot of concern about those who are coming in and taking away control of the community and of the distribution of the support that they, that they needed. When the secular Zionists start coming in, it changes the flavor of the community, and a lot of the people who are there from the Yishuv HaYashan, those who had lived there before, reject the new group. So the split is already happening at that point. It builds 
over the next few generations. And there are other landmark events, the drafting of women into the IDF debate, the drafting of yeshiva students debate, the, the status quo agreement between David Ben-Gurion and the Chazonish. Like it, it, there is a series of events, but this is, without a doubt, a major influence. Okay. I thought I would also give you, though, aside from the, 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 um, the fact that this causes such a great split, where, as I mentioned last time, Rabbi Yosef Shalom el-Yashiv had been part of the state's rabbinical court system, and he walks away over this and becomes known as a major leader in the Haredi community. But aside from, from the, the political splits, I thought I'd show you a little bit about the arguments on either side. What was Rabbi Gorin's justification for allowing them to get married. If, after all, this fellow Bolak Barakovsky says, I'm a Jew. Where did he base it on? So take a look at source number five, please, on your sheet. Again, from Rabbi Blythe's summary. He actually brings five reasons. Um, I only quoted four here because the fifth gets more complicated and I think it would just confuse matters. But Rabbi Gorin claiming to have had additional evidence not available to the rabbinical courts, which had previously held hearings on the matter, bases his decision on the following considerations. One, there exists no admissible evidence attesting to Abraham Borokovsky's conversion to Judaism. There was nothing there, meaning you had no witnesses to the conversion. He couldn't name the rabbinical court, which actually did the conversion. So who says it ever happened? That's number one. Number two, in the event that a valid conversion ceremony did take place, the conversion was nullified by virtue of the fact that Borokovsky continued to live as a practicing Christian, right? We noted that there were people who testified he still went to church. Now, you will say, well, wait a minute, do we retroactively disqualify conversions? Right? That opens up its own can of worms, a very live issue in Israel today. They uh, do disqualify a conversion. Rabbi Blythe's response will be, this isn't about disqualifying a conversion, but demonstrating that there was no sincerity in the first place, and he can convert and still go to church. Clearly, he didn't understand whatever it was they were telling him, or he simply said what he needed to say to get the stamp so that his in-laws would get off his back, but, but had no intent whatsoever to, to convert. Number three, the original wedding ceremony between Chava Ginsburg and Avram Borokovsky took place in a church. Well, that's true. He wasn't Jewish at the time. I mean, if it took place in a synagogue, it wouldn't be any better. But the point is that he adds, there is no evidence, argues Rabbi Gorin, that they were subsequently married in accordance with the law of Israel. You remember the last time we said that the claim was they had, after the conversion, remarried with a chuppah. He says, tell me who married them. No, we got nothing. Four, the conversion of Avram Borokovsky, if it indeed did take place, was the result of coercion on the part of Chava Ginsburg's father, and hence is null and void. The only reason he agreed to the conversion was because he was being coerced, because his in-laws were making him miserable. The fifth argument, without going into it at length, was that when... Well, you know, don't even, don't even bother. They, um, it's just... We have, we have stuff to cover here. But that's the... Those are four out of the five arguments that are Blaich cites from Rabbi Gorin's 200-page book. But really, a lot of this centers on a very interesting question, which is, how do you determine that somebody is Jewish? Somebody shows up in your community. They come to synagogue one day, you don't know them from anybody, right? The Gabe wants to come over and give them an aliyah. How does the Gabe know they're a Jew? They're wearing a talit. 
they're mixing with everybody else. They know they know where to sit in shul and when to stand and when to sit down. Like what what exactly tells you? It happens happens every day, right? Somebody comes into the synagogue, they get counted for a million. On what basis? No one asks them. I hope for their parents' ketuba. Yeah. Generally, no. I mean, if you're in a community where you frequently will see visitors who may not be Jewish, then you may start, you know, figuring out ways. Right. There are questions you can ask that will demonstrate this person knows what they're doing or doesn't know what they're doing. But no one, no one gives a test to the person who walks into the synagogue to say, can you prove that you're a Jew and nor are we suggesting it? The truth of the matter is that historically this wasn't a problem. Right? Why wasn't this a problem historically? Who in their right mind wanted to, wanted to claim to be Jewish if they weren't Jewish? It wasn't a good thing. If somebody, if somebody came to the synagogue and said, I am Jewish, like it didn't dawn on you that they might not be and that they would want to take this on themselves and, and you know, suffer from the pogroms along with us. This wasn't even a concept. So take a look at source number six, please. Right? Moses Maimonides. He deals with two different issues here. First, the case of somebody who says, I am a Jew because I converted. These are from his laws of forbidden relationships. So he says, first, one who immerses and converts on his own. He had his own immersion. I did it myself. Do-it-yourself conversion. Or even in front of two judges is not a convert. You need three judges on a rabbinical court. You can't just convert privately. There's no such thing. One who comes and says, I converted in X's court. Right? So-and-so was on the court. And they immersed me. Is not credible to marry a Jew until he brings witnesses. Meaning, if you claim that you were converted by such-and-such a court... That's not good enough. You need witnesses to the conversion. You need a document from the court. However, they're Jewish for everything else. For the sake of marriage, there's a, uh, there's a, a higher level. You need a document from the rabbinical court. You need witnesses to the conversion. They, uh, however, for everything else, if they walk in and say, I converted in such and such a court, that's good enough. I don't need to ask them questions. They can get an aliyah. They can be invited over. All the things that you would do. If a Jew walked into shul, that's what you can do for them. Diane. Yes. Right, so they have to keep in mind when you're dealing with Ruth that you're missing a whole lot of detail in that story. Not only the question of, in front of what rabbinical court did she convert? The, um, meaning, you do get her statement of, I want to be a Jew. And that becomes the template, in fact, that the Talmud mentions for, for declarations. But it doesn't mention anything about it, but it doesn't mention a whole bunch of things along the way that should have involved Jewish institutions. The answer seems to be the story is really not concerned with that level of detail. The, um, I, 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 this is a longer discussion than, than we can do here. Maybe what I'll do is I'll send out a link later on, because we dealt with this question in a class that I taught at Shari Shemayim. Susan was there. The, uh, the Ezra and Nehemiah class, we talked about the history of conversion and at what point it gains this kind of status within the uh, Jewish community. But basically what we do for conversion is modeled on what happened at Sinai. Meaning, as described in the Torah, the Jews at Sinai go through 
immersion in a mikvah, the men go through circumcision beforehand. They bring a korban, a special offering, which can't be brought in, you know, without a temple in our day. And they declare, whatever God tells us to do, we are going to do. That becomes the template for conversion. The question of which institutions and when is a good one. But again, after, if I remember, I'll send out a link to the, uh, to the audio from those, from those classes, because it's worth... Uh, Worth knowing, just not for right now. Yeah, sorry. I know in Israel, the Americans have donkeys. What about everywhere else? When a bride and groom come to be married, the rabbi always asks for documents, and the girl comes as a non Jewish, and the rabbi just so different communities handle it differently. South Africa, they absolutely require the ketubah. They, um, but each community handles it differently. I know that um, you know, for myself, when I was a synagogue rabbi, I only asked for, for records of some kind if I suspected that there was an issue. Meaning, if I knew the family, and I knew that this family came from such and such a synagogue, and I know that they're basically an observant community, so then I wasn't terribly worried. On the other hand, I mentioned the Rhode Island case last week. You need documents when it's strange who come to you and you don't really know why they're coming to you. They, uh, something's fishy, something's funny, better make sure that you, uh, that you check the paperwork. So it really depends on the circumstance, and it depends on what you're seeing. This isn't this, you know, keep in mind, I, I, I stressed it when I said, when I introduced it, take a look again at number 13, it's talking about somebody who comes to you and says, I converted. They're not claiming that they were Jewish their whole lives. They're claiming they converted. Once they make that statement, you have to say, wait a minute, you want to marry somebody? I need to know this was done right. I'll accept you for everything else. But for marriage, I need to know. No, burial, they can be buried without a problem. All matters other than marriage, they don't need to, to document it. They say they converted. That's good enough. Now look at the second paragraph in number six. A female convert who is observed to practice Jewish ways at all times, such as immersing when in Ida, going to mikvah, tithing dough, right, challah, and the like. And a male convert who acts in Jewish ways, immersing for his impurity, performing all the mitzvot. These people are presumed to be converts, even though they lack witnesses who can testify as to the identity of their converting court. Meaning, someone shows up in your community, they're acting as a Jew, they're doing the things that we're used to Jews doing. You presume that they are Jewish. However, if they wish to marry Jews, again, we will not marry them until they bring witnesses, or if they want, they can immerse again in front of us, since they were known to have been non-Jewish. Because again, they've established their identity as non-Jews. So the big question is this. In this second paragraph here, 13.9, what does it mean when you say, we see that they act as Jews? That's exactly the question with this fellow Borokovsky. And I brought you a table in number seven rather than bring you paragraphs and paragraphs to, uh, to show you the different opinions. Rabbi Yashiv argued that acting as a Jew varies by community. It varies by community. In some communities, everybody does this. In many communities, it's just not so. So that, when we saw last week that this fellow Borokovsky was going to synagogue sometimes, but also going out with friends and, and eating pork, the, uh, he says, Rabbi Eliashev says, you know what? The Jews where he lived, he lived in, uh, in, in Tel Aviv, the Jews where he lived, that's what they do. So as far as I am concerned, he is acting as a Jew. 
and therefore I'm willing to accept him as Jewish. It's a lenient standard to accept him as Jewish, but it's a double-edged sword because it means the kids are mamzerim. Right? Leniency on one side, stringency on the other. Rabbi Bitzalel Zolti, another major figure on the rabbinical court of the time that heard this case, said, one of the courts that heard this case, says what it actually means is that he's viewed as a Jew by the community in which he lives. If everybody talks about him as a Jew, they include him, then that means that he's somebody who is, uh, who is accepted to be Jewish. Again, Barakovsky accepted as Jewish by his friends, therefore he is a Jew. Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli was very interesting. Rabbi Shaul Yisraeli, a major figure in the religious Zionist camp, actually said that the, the, um, it's not based on social standards. It's based on whether he's actually adhering to Judaism as a Jew, and you also need what was in the first paragraph of number six, that he has to identify the court in which he converted. And based on that, Rabbi Yisraeli says, Barakowski can't name the court where he converted. And he's not acting in accordance with Jewish law. And therefore, I'm inclined to say he's not Jewish. And therefore, the kids can marry. But he stopped just short. Rabbi Israeli stopped just short of endorsing the view of Rabbi Goran. Even though, from a legal perspective, he said, I see the justification, he wasn't willing to go that step. And then last, Rabbi Goran said, no. I read 13.9 to mean practicing Jewish ways at all times. And either you do or you don't. Barakovsky does, and he's not a Jew. So you see the range of different reads here leading to different conclusions. And again, being lenient regarding the Langer brother and sister means you're being strict about your standard to define yourself as a Jew. Right? If Barakovsky isn't Jewish, that means a whole lot of other converts can't prove that they're Jewish. So you have to be careful. You can't just say, well, let's rule leniently. It ain't so. Susan. I was always under the impression, or I was taught, that when you ask one rabbi a halacha, you can't go there and say, I don't like your decision, I'm going to go rabbi too, maybe he'll give me the decision I want. But once you ask and the rabbi is giving you uh, a deen or a psaac, you have to follow that rabbi. Well, once the big deen here gave a psaac, even if they're wrong, I thought they're not allowed to go and get a, and so Susan raises a very important and interesting question, which is, you're not supposed to go rabbi shopping. The, uh, what's this idea of getting a second opinion? So, first, just to be aware from the history of the case, the, the Israeli rabbinical courts had a court of appeal system, and that was what they did. So the first court said, he's Jewish, they can't marry, and then the appeal went to this higher court, and they confirmed the lower court's decision, then it went back to the lower court, who again said, yeah, they can't get married, it went back, it actually went through several cycles of appeals. But the more important point is, appeals are possible in the event that there's new data. Either a new data or a new argument. And this is true within Jewish law for anything. So in other words, you went to the rabbi and you said, I want to know if this thing is kosher or whatever it is. And the rabbi gave you an answer. And then you realize, wait, there's more information. You absolutely can go back or go to somebody else and say, you know, there's new data on this. That's, that, that's an established principle. Okay. So this, the, uh, this is a, a key moment, as I said, in terms of the evolution of the, of, of the Jewish state. It's the intersection of Jewish law and the state on a fundamental issue of human rights, essentially. It's not the only case, right? Some of you were there when I talked about Brother Daniel uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in a class a couple of years ago. And remember the Brother Daniel case? 
Some of you were there. They, um, you remember. They, uh, the brother Daniel case was, it involved a fellow by the name of Oswald Rufeisen. Oswald Shmuel Rufeisen. And it's a long story, and maybe we'll discuss it here at some point. We're not going to do it right now. But he was a Jew in Poland pre-war. Um, he was, at one point, he was hidden uh, with Carmelite monks, and he converted to Christianity, and ultimately became a Carmelite himself. They, um, they, he changed his name. He no longer was known as Shmuel Oswald Rufeisen. Instead, he was Brother Daniel. And after the war, he decided to make Aliyah. Remember, Carmelites are based where? Mount Carmel. That's right. So he wanted to make Aliyah as a Jew. Not, I want to move to Israel, but under the right of return. I am a Jew. Never mind that I'm a practicing monk, right? Having accepted Christianity, I want to be recognized as a Jew. Well, that caused a huge stir, especially post-Holocaust. The whole idea of a Jew becoming a Christian and claiming Jewish identity was very, very sensitive. And this raged in the 50s. David Ben-Gurion sent letters to leading rabbis, leading Jewish thinkers in general of all different flavors around the world to get their opinions on how do you define Judaism, who is a Jew. So this isn't, the Langer case isn't the only case where you had the state and Jewish law clashing on the issue of Jewish identity. But, but this is such a strong case. I mean, they, you know, the question that's been asked recently in the headlines in Israel, if someone serves in the IDF, why can't they be buried in a Jewish cemetery, right, if there are questions about their Judaism? Here, if they're serving in the IDF, how can you tell me that they can't marry any Jew they, uh, they wish to marry? And the range of views here are on display. Moshe Dayan, the state must have, must have its way. Rabbi El Yashiv and so on, Jewish law has to be independent. We have to be able to arrive at our conclusions without interference from the, uh, the political structure. But here's something really interesting. Take a look at number eight. For a public speech by Rabbi Gorin, delivered in 1966, available on YouTube. He says, in Hebrew, but yeah. He says, it is clear that we need Torah leaders who will have a nationalistic approach to political questions and a positive approach to the historical turn of the Jewish people that happened with the establishment of the state. In other words, the state is a factor within Jewish law. You can't decide a case like the Langers without thinking about the impact on the state. It is a factor in your decision. The eternity of the Torah lies in the space for maneuvering and the possibilities open to its guardians, scholars, and those who fulfill it. Each generation has its own innovations in Torah, but all this is only within the framework of the Torah, within the framework of the Halakha. Those are loaded words, right? Makes it sound like there's a lot of flexibility and malleability. Scares quite a few people. On the other hand, the point that he's making is a valid one which is that there can be room for the modern circumstance. And knowing Torah well enough to know where there's room and where there isn't requires the highest level of expertise. But that's why he makes the decision he does. This is the justification. He knows full well that basically everybody else in that legal discussion has ruled against him. He knows it. But he believes that there is room for the flexibility and that there's a need for the flexibility for the sake of the state. Clear? This 
1966 was when they wanted to get married, and in 1972 was when they were actually given permission. Right. I mean, today they would just go to Cyprus, but um, but yes, there's a six year there's a six year period where I'm assuming that they actually did go ahead and get married at that point. I don't. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. I yeah. Diane. Sure. So, it isn't really teaching about flexibility. The two are not the, the debate there is not a flexibility debate. What Diane is talking about is the passage in the Talmud in which Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua are having a debate. It becomes a brawl between the sages and Rabbi Eliezer, where the sages take one view. It's a matter of ritual purity and impurity. Um, the sages take one view, and he takes the other view, and he says, if I am right, let the tree outside be uprooted, and the tree comes up out of the ground. And they say, we don't care. The tree doesn't tell us what Jewish law is. And they, well, let the river run upstream. And they say, that's nice. It also doesn't dictate. Let the walls of the study hall cave in if I'm right. And they start to cave in. At that point, the sages say, enough. Stop. It doesn't work that way. And a voice comes out of the heavens and says, he's right. However, the rule follows the majority because that's how we're supposed to adjudicate. But the story there is not about flexibility in law. The story there is about human authority to follow the rules that we've been given to adjudicate. Even if that means we come to a conclusion that others think is wrong, as long as we follow the process, it's correct. And even so, there is no objective. This is the right answer, and you guys are wrong. Follow the process, and they are considered to be correct. The majority had all agreed that what Rabbi Warren had said was correct. Of the majority on a rabbinical court within within the court, yes. Okay. Yeah. No, the issue is the mamzer status that's prohibiting them from being able to get married. That's the problem. It's not about whether the kids are Jewish. The kids are, are, are definitely Jewish. That wasn't their issue. Judith. Yeah. No, it's absolutely an issue. The question of the status of the Ethiopians are, are their own issue, because the Ethiopians claim to have a tradition of being Jewish. With the Russians, you have many people who know that they had no background of being Jewish at all, but they come over and they do a conversion with or without acceptance of mitzvot, and then the question is, what's the status of their conversion? And yes, the arguments that are put forth here that are strict in the context of the Langers will be very lenient regarding the status of these Russian immigrants. Right? That's what, they'll end up being considered Jewish. The rule that says, nah, Barakovsky's not Jewish, will end up saying, and neither are these Russian immigrants. Like I said, leniency on one side ends up being stringency on the other. It's not so simple and straightforward. Yeah, there's a whole body of literature regarding conversions of the uh, of the Russian immigrants for that for that reason. The Ethiopians are really their own uh, their own issue. It's really a, a separate phenomenon, less about conversion. Okay, so let's move on to topic number three.